across the road, pecking gravel in the noonday sun. Shaking her tail like the queen of the yard, not minding anyone. Welcome to the Crude Life Week in Review. My name is Jason Spees. Thank you, folks, for joining us here at the Crude Life Week in Review. On today's program, we have William Prentice, CEO of Meridian Energy Group, giving us an update with the Davis Refinery. Davis Refinery is going into Belfield, North Dakota. First greenfield refinery to be built in the United States in the last 50 years, and it's heading to the Bakken to Belfield, North Dakota. How about that, folks, huh? Also, after years, year and a half, two years of going through the red tape of government and regulations and all that red tape, we'll just say nice words like that, Meridian Energy Group has announced they will be doing a second refinery down in Texas in the Permian Basis, Winkler County. So we're going to track that as well. Of course, that will be more online than it will on this program, but that's okay. Check it out. How about that, folks? The Bakken, Belfield, North Dakota, setting the bar already. So another proposed one for the Meridian Energy Group, but this update, we're going to stay in the Bakken. We're going to talk about some of the misinformation that was out recently in the Associated Press. So we called the CEO of Meridian Energy Group to get the lowdown to find out what exactly is correct, what exactly is not. And uh, we talk with him just in a little bit here on the program. And then we talk with Terry Edom. He's an energy writer for the BOE Report. He's also an author. End of the Fossil Fuels Insanity. So it's a great conversation that we talk about the religion of environmentalism. Also, the natural gas storage and infrastructure issues that are hap- happening right now. And what it's like to talk to an environmentalist. What it's, what it's like these days. And he and I share our real-life examples about that. And then you're going to want to stick around because our conversation about the planet's champion being the, planet's, the planet Earth's champion, boy, I tell you, you're not going to want to miss that. That is some fun stuff. Terry Edom. Energy writer for the BOE Report and author of The End of Fossil Fuels Insanity. Joining us right here on The Crude Life Week in Review. For more information about the program or our social media sites, 350,000 social media followers, energy enthusiasts we have here at The Crude Life, and some of our different radio stations and programs, go to thecrudelife.com and check out all the information right there. All right, William Prentice coming up in just a moment right here. On the Crude Life Week in Review, my name is Jason Spies. Jason Spies, the most trusted voice in the Bakken. I totally agree with you, and the word that you brought into this is fact. You tell the facts, and then you let people make up their own minds. If you want someone who's competent, you don't want to get a bunch of rookies. Love listening to Jason Spies on the radio. And if I miss him there, I catch him online. Let's bring in Jason Spies, who is a multimedia journalist in North Dakota. Um, Jason, what's your thought on this? No one does an interview like Jason Spies. Welcome back to the Crude Life at Week in Review. My name is Jason Spies. Thank you, folks, for joining us here today. All right, coming up next, William Prentice, the CEO of Meridian Energy Group, talking about the Davis Refinery. Well, um, as you know, we've been uh, in construction out in the field. We had to button that up for the winter. Um, We also had a lot of legal activity to take care of 
in connection with our permits, and that appears to be mostly behind us now. Uh, we're in design. Uh, McDermott's our contractor. Uh, they're a big international firm, and uh, they will be using a lot of local contractors in the field, but right now they're busy on design and procurement, and we'll move back to the field this coming spring. I did want to ask you about a um, Associated Press story that I read about your permit to construct. Uh, it had to do with some local people about whether they would be adversely affected by the refinery. And, and anyway, that quote in there about the concern about the health and well-being seemed to stand out a little bit to me. Did that, did you guys, were you guys able to see that or address that or comment on that in any way? Well, we, you know, we have to be selective in how we address what appears in press. You know, there's a lot of misinformation. Uh, the air quality permit was something we fought long and hard for and had to do a lot to make sure that uh, this project is not going to negatively impact anybody. Um, you know, we did a lot of work to make sure that that's not going to happen. And I think uh, it's just improper for people to continue to apply that this project is going to somehow be a heavy polluter. It's, it's going to be the cleanest such project on the planet when it's done. Uh, we've also done studies that show that, uh, that there's actually going to be more pollution from the visitation to the National Park, the TR Park, that will show up at the refinery than there will be pollution from the refinery show up at the park. Uh, 700,000 visitors per year produce a lot of air pollution and uh, uh, we're actually the recipients of that at the refinery more than the park will suffer from the refinery itself. Um, we also did another uh, recent analysis. It's going to appear as a, a white paper in some of the technical press showing that a dollar uh, invested in a clean refinery like Davis because it reduces pollution from other dirty refineries is a better investment than buying into a wind park or a solar array. It reduces greenhouse gases by much, much more. So by cleaning up our conventional energy sources, we can get back to a cleaner planet a lot quicker than by going after such things as, uh, as those wind towers. You know, one thing that I kind of took from that when I was reading the story is... It almost seems like, because really, we're talking about science here. And at the end of the day, you guys had an 18-month review, somewhat of 11,000-plus comments, 900 pages of scientific analysis. I think the EPA was even involved. I mean, you've had a fine-tooth comb on a fine-tooth comb. Yet, it still seems, you know, this misinformation keeps popping up. Is, is a lot of this emotional, or is it the old mentality of refineries? Because it almost seems like you guys just continue to produce the information that continues to get validated, that continues to go through that cycle, yet every now and then I'm, I'm seeing that there's still questions coming out of somewhere, I guess. So do, do you understand the question? Is this, is this an emotional, misinformational type thing, or, or talk to me a little bit about that? Well, yeah, some of it is, I'm sure, and we tr have to try to avoid the emotional response of, of resenting people continuing to question, you know, our our honesty and our integrity and, 
and the science that goes into what we've we've done here. But when we started out, there was no way to get around the fact that people looking at what we're doing are going to associate our efforts with the refineries they see all over the place, which, you know, are an average age of a refinery here in the U.S. is now well over 50 years. So they're not real clean. Uh, they don't look real nice. And, yeah, if you're reading about a new refinery going in near you, you're going to start to get worried. So we decided early on we're going to treat every concern as being valid and address it as fully as possible, uh, both with regard to the science and, and everything else, because, you know, there's an emotional aspect to all of that. Um, but then, you know, there's there's kind of a tipping point where, you go through everything over and over again, and you know we get our permit, and it was it was actually longer than eighteen months, and you know eleven thousand public comments that were addressed, each one of them separately. And that was William Prentice, the CEO of Meridian Energy Group, talking about the Davis Refinery coming to Belfield, North Dakota. To listen to the full-length interview or to check out other exclusive interviews, visit thecrudelife.com. That's thecrudelife.com. My name is Jason Spies, and this is The Crude Life Week in Review. Now you're running on a thin line Through a frozen void No feeling in your fingers No other choice You are the queen of a midnight run Eleven years of dark to taste the sun And your baby blue eyes. Welcome back to the Crude Life Week in Review. My name is Jason Spies. Thank you, folks, for joining us. Coming up next, Terry Edom. He's an energy writer and the author of The End of the Fossil Fuel Insanity. This is Terry Edom, energy writer with the BOE Report. Outstanding. Thank you for joining us here today. In addition to the BOE Report, your writing resume has gotten a little bit bigger. And before we get into uh, some of the Topics on hand. Let's start off by your the end of fossil fuel insanity, clearing the air before cleaning the air. It's a book written by Terry Edom, our guest here. And talk to me a little bit about the book, the process, where it's available, etc. Oh, sure. Uh, so the book originated. I've been writing an energy column for four or five years now, and uh, the point of the writing I try and do is to try and um, shave the edges off the extremes of the debate. We've, we've just become into such a locked, polarized debate here where um, there's a whole movement to kill the fossil fuel industry. And at the same time, there's a fossil fuel industry that points out, well, you can't survive without fossil fuels. We can't have our standard of living without fossil fuels. And it seems like the debate's just gotten very polarized and the um, the extremists have taken over the, the stage and the microphone and they've been talking about how easy it is going to be to get off fossil fuels. And, and I think that the fossil fuel industry, the petroleum industry is what I speak for mostly, um, has kind of taken the, the tack that people will realize that it's, it, it's, uh, it should be obvious how much we rely on fossil fuels. But I think people don't pay that much attention to their energy sources, particularly in urban areas. And so I think it's uh, the, the, the battle's just gotten away from us. So this is just an attempt to explain to people who are perhaps not directly involved in the petroleum industry um, just how reliant we are, just try and make them understand that and how difficult it is going to be to go to different energy systems. 
I've brought up the phrase, the religion of environmentalism, because I believe that movement has turned into almost a religious type movement to where the, the amount of blind faith and the amount of social causes that are really involved. Um, it's, it's, I don't know, just go ahead and take over from there. Is that, is, do you agree with that? Do you disagree with that? Is that anything your book talks no, about? I, I agree with that. Absolutely. That it, it's become a, a good versus evil thing in the minds of a lot of people. And, and they, when I say they've taken the stage, they're convincing people that it is evil to burn oil or natural gas is evil. And, and because you're destroying the planet and it's an easy sell because people get scared by those sorts of messages. And, um, and, and it's just such a flawed argument because it's actually what gives us life. Like, and if you look at the, the recent cold snap that we've had here, like in Chicago, a couple of weeks ago there, like what would have happened to that city if those natural gas lines had gone down going into the city? There's actually an incident in um, uh, Rhode Island. This was just before Christmas where they declared a state of emergency because the natural gas demand was so high that it depressurized the system and people couldn't get enough supplies. They had to cut off 7,000 customers that's not just homes, that's, or that's not 7,000 people, that's 7,000 customers. So that could be buildings, it could be all sorts of things. And they had to declare a state of emergency. That, that's how close these, some of these communities are to a, a disaster And uh, if, if fossil fuel supplies were cut. Never mind transportation or, or imagine no air travel or something like that. And, and I think that the, the, our industry hasn't been doing a great job of, of, of elaborating on that to people we think it's obvious to people but it's not so so you're right it's become a religion and it's become you're evil if you're on one side and if you're good if you're on the other even though uh, we're the ones that keep everyone alive so this is a very interesting conversation because this is the birth of the planet's champion the champion of the planet i've 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 toyed with this call it you know wrestling gimmick if you will um to almost go over the top to elaborate a point of what you just talked about. The industry does not do a good job of this. And I agree, they don't. And um, the one side has painted a picture of fear, like you said, and the when in fact the oil and gas industry could paint a reality of fear. Not not a speculative fear, because I'll get into that no, in, ju- in just a moment. Absolutely real. But, but, yeah. the, but the reality is, is that if fossil fuels went away at, say, 30 percent of what they're doing now that would have an enormous disruption on the planet it would have an enormous disruption on our way of life it would have an enormous disruption on from the economy to just basically uh you know like you said transportation in general so life as we know it would change if you if you took 30 percent away from uh, the imagine a heating source gone in winter like i just mentioned or, or or not being able to transport food or or not being able to transport things by ship or, or air travel anything any of those that you mentioned it, it would just have such catastrophic consequences and but people take it for granted you know and the the thing that i've always thought about like the, this argument I, I used to joke that i don't mind putting environmentalists on our program if they want to have an intelligent conversation i don't mind that at all mm-hmm. Um, we're, you know, we're, we have a lot of oil and gas programs as well as our non-oil and gas programs are still anchored, uh, with oil and gas because it's that, it's that important within our economy. It's that important in our lifestyle. It's that important with our life. And we just feel that's important for people to know. So 
we don't mind having the opposition on. Uh, you know, I, we, we had we had Dapple protesters on. They they had a legitimate argument in the beginning, and then it went on by the wayside very quickly, and it turned into like you said, a, a good versus evil thing, and there was no logic anymore in anything. But right. Right. Um, when they you know are, are serving me a Keurig coffee or you know that sort of like a Keurig is one of the worst things for the environment. I mean, if if if, if you want to go behind their argument of the single serving plastic, et cetera, et cetera, I, I just laugh at it and I won't have them on the program because they're talking ridiculousness. Anybody who says that we need to eliminate fossil fuels really is not having a very intelligent conversation. They're just not. Now, they're if, just not. no, they're not. They, they're just not. There's no argument against it. Um, I'm sorry. That's just that's just a very factual statement. Anybody who says that they want to eliminate fossil fuels, that's an extreme, unrealistic thought. Now, let's say if they want to have a discussion on how to maybe go back to glass bottles instead of plastic, or figure something out of, um, you know, those uh, what, what what are those uh, six pack uh, ring holders that you know the, oh, the, right. the fish, yeah. fish are getting stuck in out in the ocean? Yeah. Okay. You know what? That that that's a great that's a great conversation because that you know plastic bags, uh, those ring things in plastic bottles that would have enough of a dent to where enough people would have to shift certain parts of their life, but it wouldn't have this sweeping effect across every part of life that we know it. But I think yeah. the oil and gas industry would even be open to a conversation like that, don't you? I mean, because to me, they I've seen the oil and gas industry really being the only proactive people in this. <laughs> How's that for irony? <laughs> it is, it is. And, and they would absolutely be open to it. And even the a lot of the, the, um, the petroleum people I talked to downtown here, and I talked to a lot of them in, in the heart of Canada's petroleum business here, like a lot of them will even say it. There, there is a, a date when we won't rely on fossil fuels as much. We, we agree with them on that. It's just that it's not in 10 years. It's going to be in 40 or 50 years, and it's going to be really, really hard to get there. And we really need to think about it and have a roadmap how to get there rather than just saying, well, we have to stop it now uh, because there's no thought that goes into that. And that's the you're right. I think the, the some of the examples you gave there are, are the place to start. You go for the low hanging fruit. Like why why, do, why aren't we tackling those things first? And I use an example in the book there. I don't I don't know what it's like in your state, but here we have a deposit on on soda cans and and beer cans and stuff. You return them, you get your deposit back. Well, why don't we have that on everything? Why don't you have it on a Starbucks cup? And why don't you have it as a two dollar deposit? Would you think any of those will get thrown in the garbage if you have to pay a two dollar deposit on a cup? Like it's. Uh, we, we just need to incentivize people to act in a, a different way so that they stop wasting things. No, I agree completely. Uh, Terry Edom with us. He's an energy reporter for the BOE Report, energy writer for the BOE Report. And we say writer because he also write, wrote a book called The End of Fossil Fuel Insanity, Clearing the Air Before Cleaning the Air. And we're kind of using that as our, our thesis, talking about some of the Issues actually in oil and gas that are going on, whether it be from a PR standpoint or whether it be from a, 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 the religion of environmentalism or just the whole uh, misinformation that seems to be out there on, on a regular basis. The one that I like to talk to these activists about who want to get rid of fossil fuels tomorrow um, when it comes to like cars, you know, they, they like to talk about electric cars. They like to talk about wind energy. They like to talk about solar energy. And that, that's a frustrating conversation because it's easier to talk to a, to a walnut tree than it is to talk to these people. Because honestly, we're coal 
and lithium batteries. I mean, when you start thinking about some of the things that they're saying are all the evils of, you know, fracking and mining and all these other things, their solution is a lot of times not better, <laughs> if, that, if that makes sense. No, it, it's it's no. actually worse. Right. And they, 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 they take these things for granted, like you say, that a, a, a electric vehicle is... Uh, better for the environment but if you pull together the web of components that go into that and the, the infrastructure that's required to find and mine all of those things and bring it to the assembly point mr terry edom i'm going to ask you to hold that thought for just a moment when we come back we're going to continue the conversation with terry edom energy writer and author of the end of the fossil fuel insanity my name is jason Spees, and this is the crude life we can review This week, we're spotlighting Brooks West, the singer-songwriter. Check his website out, brookswestmusic.com. That's brookswestmusic.com. This is singer-songwriter Brooks West. Jason Spies, the most trusted voice in the Bakken. I totally agree with you, and the word that you brought into this is fact. You tell the facts. And then you let people make up their own minds. If you want someone who's competent, you don't want to get a bunch of rookies. Love listening to Jason Spies on the radio. And if I miss him there, I catch him online. Let's bring in Jason Spies, who is a multimedia journalist in North Dakota. Um, Jason, what's your thought on this? No one does an interview like Jason Spies. From apartment to apartment, state to state, and it doesn't really matter where I go. There's only one place I could call my Welcome back to the Crude Life Week in Review. My name is Jason Spies. Thank you, folks, for joining us. Coming up next, we continue the conversation with Terry Edom. He's an energy writer for the BOE Report, also the author of The End of the Fossil Fuel Insanity. They take these things for granted, like you say, that an electric vehicle is is better for the environment. But if you pull together the web of components that go into that and the the infrastructure that's required to find and mine all of those things and bring it to the assembly point, um, if, if if you've ever seen a the environmental disaster in China from their rare earth processing, which goes into magnets, which goes into uh, electric vehicles, like it's just an, an environmental nightmare, and it's and it's uh, it's that's all part of the equation. But they don't see that; they only see the car that gets plugged into the to the wall, and and then even the the, the cars that get plugged into the wall, like they they. The, the extremists say, well, we, we have to get rid of all our vehicles and go to electric vehicles. But they don't even think about that either. Like, And, and you can take a, a good example is in your house. If you plug in three things on the same circuit, you blow a breaker, right? Well, what happens if, a, if an apartment building plugs in 100 Teslas at once? Well, what breaker gets broken? Like the, the infrastructure that brings electricity to residential areas is was not built for those kind of loads. And, and to think that you can just convert everyone to those new cars it's just it's just ludicrous nobody's even thought about that 
Well, and I even look at like wind, you know, wind and I'm not a fan of wind and I never have been. I like windmills on farms. I think there is a great use for a personal, like smaller scale wind piece that you can maybe put on your house. I've seen some communities. They've got some vertical winds. Chicago's got a lot of them on skyscrapers. In fact, in like India, in some of the foreign countries, uh, on the medians, they'll have uh, like wind turbines that are vertical so that not only do you get the wind, but you get the velocity of the cars going by. So, you know, these are some really innovative ideas. Yeah, that that don't need to be these bigger-than-life turbines that, you know, you have to have 50 jobs for every turbine. You know what, sometimes... Those economics don't work. Those numbers just don't work. And I don't know about what your opinion is on wind, but for me, that is the one energy source that I think is is probably the worst one out of all of them. I mean, I'm, I'm including coal in there and everything because coal's made some amazing advancements when it comes to uh, clean coal energy, that sort of thing. And I get it. They're, they're, they're still got a ways to go, et cetera. But to me, wind as the replacement for coal is not working out. They need to rely on natural gas. And also, um, it's not replacing one megawatt of coal is replacing one me- megawatt of wind, if that makes sense. Right. And, and the, 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 there's the second-order um, circumstances that happen when you flood the market with wind power and solar power. And that's been seen in some jurisdictions where um, they subsidize these installations, so they, they uh, pay, pay people to put up turbines and solar farms. They generate huge lots of power. They, they do for a few hours a day at the wrong time of day. And that drives power prices down. And, and we've seen some of the established players don't want to be in the industry anymore, like the, the base load coal and natural gas facilities. Their, their business gets that much harder because they don't make as much money off the power, but they have to be there to supply power when they do, the renewables don't. So they, they create havoc in the system that these people don't even think about um, the consequence of this. There's, I think in uh, 2018 in California, there was something like over 100 instances where power prices went negative because of the excess being generated by um, wind and solar. And, and so so for these poor power producers that are uh, selling into the grid at the time when that glut is coming on, they're actually losing money for having their plants operating. Well, what kind of an incentive is that? And how does that work in the long run? It just doesn't work. You know, I'm thinking, the more I'm thinking about this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to order a belt and I'm going to start a little little campaign, the planet's champion. And you know what? The belt's going to be made entirely out of petroleum products. And, um, you know, because the more I'm thinking, I mean, honestly, I, I've been thinking that this is, this is really backwards when the most proactive environmentalists on the planet, a lot of them truly are oil and gas companies. I, I, I honestly I feel I feel very yeah. confident saying that now. I wondered it for the last five years, but now I feel really confident, especially after seeing the Davis Refinery, Meridian Energy Group, the lengths that they've gone to make sure that um, their their refinery is pumping out some you know some clean uh, energy that sort of thing. And now they just uh, did a letter of intent down in Texas, so they're going to do a second refinery now, and understanding how they have gone about making sure that the emissions and the air quality is there is absolutely amazing. I haven't heard anybody in any argument for any environmental wave ever come close to making any sort of solutionable argument or solutionable statement, if that makes sense. No, and and especially if you take in context 
the fact that now you can look at a place like Texas or, or North Dakota or the Bakken or Marcellus or wherever, and you can look at these areas and say, oh, yes, you do have a, a, a big environmental footprint. Your emissions are high. But consider why they're high. The, the U.S. produces 12 million barrels a day of oil, which is 12% of global energy. Just think of that for a second. 12% of global energy. Now, that has to have a, an environmental footprint. Anything that's 12% of the global economy is going to have a massive environmental footprint. If you take all of the iPhones that they won't live without or their cell phones, what's the, what's the environmental footprint of a cell phone? The cell phone has 78 elements on the periodic table out of 118. They come from every corner of the earth and they're found and they're mined and they're processed and they're transported and then refined and then reassembled. The, the footprint of these things is enormous. So to single out the energy industry who's, provi- who's making all this happen, it, it's just too absurd for words really. But we have to do it anyways. <laughs> we have to get out there and spread the message. So. Do you say the cell, the cell phone has got 78 different elements from the periodic table? Yeah, isn't that astonishing? That is absolutely astonishing. I've, you know, I've heard of the lithium in terms of being, the lithium mining is one of the worst minings for the planet in terms of rankings and things like that. It's up there with the old days of the old gold and ore, you know, where they just leave the open yeah. pits. So, well, I, you know, well, I, 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 I understand that argument. And I've heard that a lot of the... Um, conductor wires are made from either gold, silver. A lot of them are out of silver because the amount of energy that's being conducted in such a small processor needs to be a good energy conductor. And that's why gold and silver and platinum have have had uh, value over time because and copper to some extent too because they're good conductors of, of electricity and they're malleable. And so my understanding is there was a lot of silver in that, but I, boy, 78, that is a lot of different elements. I, I was shocked when I was researching that for the book, um, and, and I, I was, like, in disbelief, too, but if you if you uh, go through and look at the rare earth elements and the, um, yeah, a lot of rare components that go into it, just trace elements, but they're all necessary. I assume they're necessary. That's why they're in there. Yeah, um, wow. It, it's shocking, and, and where it all comes from. And if anyone was to, I'd like to see someone sit down and, piece together the environmental footprint of a single cell phone and and that would be just astonishing i think that would be amazing actually and i'm surprised somebody hasn't done that yet well yeah you know a lot of people aren't interested in even talking about that it's the same thing as um uh, all of the the united nations and the international panel on climate change or whatever um they're they're they fill our ears relentlessly about the evils of fossil fuels but have a look at where all of their conferences are held they're held in Mexico, they're held in um, Australia, they're held in Peru, they're held in Poland. They, they, they fly every exotic location you can think of. The middle of the Pacific Ocean in Mauritius, some little island I hadn't even heard of, they go to some tropical resort there to have a climate change conference. And it's like, are you, are you people trying to mock us? That's what it seems like to me, because they show no regard for limiting consumption, but they're, they're more than willing to attack the people that put the fuel in the planes that keep them in the air which to a lot of us just doesn't it's, it's just nonsensical but that's what they do so. mr terry edom i'm going to ask you to hold that thought one more time we continue the conversation in just a moment with terry edom energy writer boe report also the author of the end of the fossil fuel insanity my name is jason Spees, and this is the crude life we can review back around
days when I feel lost and separated And every step I take falls on foreign ground And I feel like going back to North Dakota I'll Take a job, find a wife And finally settle down But right now I'm addicted to emotion And freedom at my selfish solitude provides And I'd hate to think that I'd become a stranger To the place where I was born Where my heart still resides Where the nighttime lights earth and light on the horizon Under the soft red glow of the wintertime sunny clouds Meridian Energy Group of Belfield, North Dakota is building the most technologically advanced oil refinery on the planet, the Davis Refinery, a project designed to achieve emission control levels the industry has never seen before. The Davis Refinery, working for North Dakota. MeridianEnergyGroupInc.com. Jason Spies, the most trusted voice in the Bakken. I totally agree with you, and the word that you brought into this is fact. You tell the facts. And then you let people make up their own minds. If you want someone who's competent, you don't want to get a bunch of rookies. Love listening to Jason Speece on the radio. And if I miss him there, I catch him online. Let's bring in Jason Speece, who is a multimedia journalist in North Dakota. Um, Jason, what's your thought on this? No one does an interview like Jason Speece. You can run from the wintertime in the midnight black. Welcome back to the Crude Life Week in Review. My name is Jason Spees. Thank you, folks, for joining us here. We continue the conversation with Terry Edom, energy writer for the BOE Report, and also he's the author of The End of the Fossil Fuel Insanity. This is Terry Edom. We got come up. Oh, the reason why we have you on is we want to kind of do a little follow-up of an interview we did several months ago about the potential for natural gas shortages uh, to kind of illustrate the fact that we have all this natural gas and this abundance of natural gas, but until we can find a technology to make it economical to store it, it's being wasted uh, to the tune to where we actually have cities like Chicago, and you referenced earlier Rhode Island actually went to a state of emergency because of it, uh, talk to me a little bit about that, about the uh, the story that you wrote before our prediction or your prediction and our conversation and then kind of where we're at with, um, you know, the Rhode Island and anybody else seeing any potential. Because in, in North Dakota, they've gone like 51, 52 days below zero or below freezing, you know, and so we're getting to where we're, now we're starting to get into the cold season. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hopefully we're on the way out. But uh so when I wrote that article, I was heading into fall, and we were uh, the U.S. was heading into a, uh, the lowest storage levels in, in decades, and uh, winter was coming, and the, the the low storage didn't seem to phase anyone because their the attitude was that well, there's all sorts of wells that can be turned on at a moment's notice, and so we don't need a lot of storage, and the U.S. gas storage. Uh, capacity hasn't really grown that much it's grown some but not a lot nowhere near what consumption has grown so the, the article i wrote was like I, I hope people wake up and pay attention to their possible risk here uh, if you did have a cold winter from say i don't know beginning of december right through 
that if you depleted supplies, what would happen? And I'm sure some people, especially now, we made it through winter and it wasn't cold for a long time, so we're okay on the storage side. But some people might look at it and go, well, see, the system works, or that was just fear-mongering or whatever. But the the, the point still holds. And, and the fact that the winter was warmer, it's, it's been colder, like you said, for now. But uh, before, in the earlier part of the year, um, when demand could be really high, we made it through okay. Um, but the danger hasn't gone away. And then these, these smaller events, like you mentioned here, just point out again the, the uh, how close we are to like real trouble. Um, and in Chicago, when they had that extreme cold snap uh, a few weeks ago there where it got so cold, it was only for a few days, uh, there was a compressor fire uh, somewhere outside of Chicago and it limited the flow. And um, as an emergency measure, they shut down, I think, 13 auto manufacturing plants somewhere because they were just such big, they could shut them down and they were such big draws of natural gas um, but that, that's how close we are to trouble. And if, and if you think of an apartment building, even where you live there, with, that had its natural gas shut off for a day um, in conditions like this, like w- what would happen to the population? And what would happen to the building with all the pipes freezing and breaking? What would it look like when you turned the natural gas back on? And if you think of like one building, that's horrible, but a whole city would be like that. And, and where would people go for shelter? And what about hospitals? And it, it's, uh, we're, we're we're, we're, we, we hang by a thread that we don't re- realize it. And, well, a few threads, but these are natural gas pipelines, and, and people just can't get that. In um, Vancouver or in British Columbia, there was a natural gas pipeline that blew up in the northern part of the province, a long ways from Vancouver, hundreds of miles. And, uh, and it was down for five days, and they brought it back up at part capacity. And Vancouver was warned when that pipeline was down, this, and this is in October, and it doesn't get very cold there. It's like Seattle. They hardly have a winter. Um, people in uh, colleges and uh, bigger institutions were warned to uh, wear mitts and, and coats to classes because there was no heat in the buildings. And that was just for a few days in October. And if that happened in January, like, it, it, I don't know, a lot of lives are at stake here, and people just don't get that. And uh, we're, we're, there is a lot of gas out there. You're absolutely right. But we, we've been so uh, accustomed to it always being there that um, we, we have to think about what happens if it's not. Well, and that's what I was wondering is, is what, what are the biggest issues? Is it the pipeline? Is it the storage? Is it uh, um, a combination of things? Um, you know, I mean, because we know that they're, they're, there's so much natural gas that they're flaring most of it. It's being flared, yep. And, and, and a lot of the problem, I think, is the, the difficulty in building pipelines, which in, in Canada, it's extreme here. We can't get anything built. But I know you have issues down there, too, and, like, New York State has blocked uh, pipelines. And that's one of the reasons Rhode Island had the emergency is because pipelines can't be built to get them more natural gas. And everywhere you turn, it's harder to build this kind of energy infrastructure, so it can't get from the places where it's in excess to where it needs to be. So... Uh, but part of it has been the, just the success of these fields themselves, where, where we, everyone is now convinced that we have we can get the gas out of the ground as quickly as we need it, which is um, may or may not be true. There's a lot of booming wells, but uh, nothing lasts forever like that. So we, we just have to, I, I think that as we get more and more, um, I wouldn't say addicted, but uh, we, we as natural gas is used in more and more places, and more of it's exported offshore as well as these new terminals coming on the demand just keeps growing up and then that just puts the risk that much higher if there ever ever is a, a big disruption what are you working on over at the uh, boe report these days just more of the same in canada here we're i don't know if you're familiar with 
our situation down there very much but we're it's like the country is run by greenpeace here we, we have we're blockaded pretty much from building any infrastructure we can't get pipelines built to either coast there's too much oil backing up in our province and natural gas and um there's pipelines like the Keystone XL, which was um, being built to, to haul oil from Alberta down to the Gulf Coast. That's been halted by, there's a Montana judge actually that's holding that up right now. Um, and, and anything that um, the environmental activists are so strong here and so good at what they do that they, they, they put a, a block on pretty much anything that gets built that's of any significance. So so it's, it's, it's very... Um, uh, the, the mood is pretty downbeat here, that's for sure, just because it's, uh, it's hard to get anything built. Hmm. So a lot of, a lot of uh, importing for Canada then. <laughs> well, and it comes and goes. The, the U.S. and Canada are like a totally integrated um, right. oil and gas business. So there's natural gas that comes from the United States into Canada over in the eastern part of the continent. And on the western side here, it tends to go the other direction. There's the same. There's oil that comes into Canada over there, and it goes south here. So mm-hmm. it's uh, we have a lot more in common with the the Midwest U.S. and the and the Western U.S. out here in the West than we do with Eastern Canada, who are quite a, a distance from us. So it, it's quite different, and and we have that same the problem where uh, all our decisions are made. Maybe you have a bit of the same in Washington, where the, all all our decisions are made out in the, the eastern part in Ontario, and um, and they, they, they look out for themselves, I guess, like any jurisdiction, but that's where the population base is. And they don't understand um, the resource business because they just take it for granted. It always shows up whenever they need it. To listen to the full-length interview with Terry Edom, energy writer for the BOE Report and the author of The End of the Fossil Fuel Insanity, visit thecrudelife.com. That's thecrudelife.com. Invite you folks to check out our social media pages as well. 350,000 social media followers we have in our network. Visit thecrudelife.com, click on the social media tab. All of the pages are listed right there from YouTube to Facebook to Twitter, you name it. It's up there. Also, exclusive interviews available at thecrudelife.com. And if you have any questions or any suggestions, feel free to email us or sign up for our newsletter. All the information is right at thecrudelife.com. That's going to do it this week for the Crude Life Week in Review. We're going to be back next week at this time on this radio station. And if you happen to be streaming us online or listening to us via a podcast through iTunes or um, many of the other podcast platforms, thank you very much for choosing us as your content. We'll be back next week with another Week in Review. From the staff at the Crude Life Week in Review, my name is Jason Spies asking you to keep calm and frack on. Peace, the most trusted voice in the Bakken. I totally agree with you, and the word that you brought into this is fact. You tell the facts, and then you let people make up their own minds. If you want someone who's competent, you don't want to get a bunch of rookies. Love listening to Jason Speece on the radio, and if I miss him there, I catch him online. Let's bring in Jason Speece, who is a multimedia journalist in North Dakota. Um, Jason, what's your thought on this? No one does an interview like Jason Speece.